to the How Did They Do It Real Estate Podcast. Have you ever wondered how people succeed in real estate and what steps they took to get there? If so, this podcast is for you. Your hosts, Sayla and Eileen Prack, interview top experts in the real estate community to share with you their real estate journey and how they achieved massive success. Our goal is to provide you with valuable real estate resources and to help you apply it to your own real estate goals. Welcome everyone to today's episode of the How Did They Do It Real Estate Podcast. I'm your host, Eileen Prack. And today our guest is Omar Khan. Omar is a CFA charter holder with 10 years of investing experience across real estate and commodities. He's advised on $3.7 billion of capital financing and M&A transactions, syndicated large multi-million dollar deals across the U.S., and advised high net worth advisors and entrepreneurs on real estate portfolio allocations. He's also a global citizen who has lived in Dubai, Toronto, Calgary, and Dallas. So welcome to the show, Omar. How are you doing today? Thank you, Eileen. Thank you for having me. So Omar, if you can give the listeners a little bit more about your background and how you got started in real estate, that would be great. Look, uh, personally speaking, I'm a third generation real estate sponsor. So my grandfather did it, my father did it. We had commercial holdings and now I'm doing it basically. So that's the personal sort of background. Uh, professionally, I was in M&A. I did finance on the institutional side. So I just had a lot of that deep financial uh, technical experience built in, plus a good professional network. So when I moved down from Canada five, six, whatever years ago, again, the reason why I moved is for a girl, uh, my wife, my fiance at the time, she was is still a physician. So it was just easier for me to move down than for her to move up. So that's why I moved. So when I moved down, you know, for us, it was a tax issue at the start. We were we felt at that time we were paying a lot of money in taxes. And I was like, well, I mean, I understand paying taxes. I don't understand paying everyone's taxes in the entire country. So for us, it was a tax thing. Luckily for me, I knew about some of the tax advantages of investing in real estate, but it was never a case of, you know, some people always have a dream of, say, doing something like, I don't know, being an engineer, doctor, being in real estate. And for me, it was just putting one one foot after the other. So it wasn't like none of this was planned or anything of the sort. Got it. And so when you decided that and you, you, you had experience and you knew about the tax benefits and everything like that, like, what did you do to kind of get started um, in real estate? Um, like, what were the first steps that you kind of took? Look, uh, look, on the technical side, I kind of had it down. So that wasn't an issue. Again, it wasn't doing this. It was just working on the institutional side for so long, running deals, operating deals, structuring deals in oil and gas, finance, all of that. So I just had a good professional knowledge set built up. And starting off, it was just, you know, networking a little bit here and there, meeting people. And a lot of it is like flailing in the dark, at least for me, not necessarily having like a a five-step plan for success, more like getting to know people, understanding where I fit in, where I didn't fit in, what I could do, what I can't do. And I'm still trying to figure that out better and better. And then just going from there. And in my case, because I'd worked on the institutional side, so for me, it was a lot easier talking to investment sales guys like brokers and all of those people because I was speaking their language, coming from that professional type world. So it was a lot easier there. But what I'm beginning to now find out is a lot of this is a very heavy marketing game. And that's something that I have to learn and become better at. Got it. And so for you right now, Omar, like what's your, what, what are you currently focusing on? Well, I'm focusing on developments and acquisitions, both acquisitions, obviously, because you know they're easier to do, but developments, obviously, because there is a higher potential of returning way, way, way above average returns. So we try to have multiple uh, balls in the air at the same time. I already have developments going on. They're all in the Southeast. Development right now is in Sioux Falls. I'm looking at another one in Huntsville. The acquisitions, which are the bread and butter, 
we have them in Florida, Georgia, and Texas. Got it. And so for you, especially with um, everything that had gone on this past year and everything like that, had your strategy changed any with in terms of like the acquisitions and what you're investing in, in terms of real estate? No, not really. I mean, I, we, I was always looking to do B or A only, which is what we've done. I mean, I, we have one C-class building. But apart from that, the, the idea was to always do B and A. So the pandemic in that regard has not changed the strategy or what we're chasing or what we're doing, any of that stuff. And so when you're looking at new developments and different acquisitions, can you share with us um, a little bit about what you look for in terms of the metrics and uh, before you start pursuing an acquisition? Well, acquisitions is slightly different and developments is slightly different, but I'll give you an overarching uh, framework that at least I look at. Obviously, this is not the only way to look at things. So the way I look at it is basically from the perspective of demographics, right? Hey, if we acquire or develop here, can our tenant base or the potential resident base that we have here, can they afford paying us this rent? Because the part that I never really got about the C-class was everybody says, well, I'm going to put in a new countertop or I'm going to do this. And my whole point was, well, yeah, you can do all of that. But if your underlying resident base, say, makes $36,000 a year, well, it's kind of hard to jack up rents, two, three, four, five, six hundred $600, whatever that number is, right? So adding more stuff isn't going to do anything when your residents don't have the ability to pay for that, essentially. So that's why we're looking basically at demographics. Part of that segues into crime, school districts, all of that sort of stuff. Then basically looking at demand and supply. So you could have a great demographics. Uh, great school districts, low crime, but if that area is choke full of apartments, it's apartment rolls for whatever reason. I mean, it's going to be very hard to compete with people, right? Because you've got 17 apartment buildings up and down the street, then it's always a price competition, right? It's not necessarily a value competition. So overarching, I mean, I've obviously oversimplified it, but demographics and then with demographics, supply and demand factors that take place. But I'm also only looking in areas that are bigger cities like the Atlantas, Jacksonville's, Orlando's, Huntsville's. So I'm not necessarily delving into like very small markets, right? So maybe I guess if you go there, you're, the way you have to handle these things might change, but I'm, I'm not really looking in those markets. Got it. And so for you, when you're going into a, a different market and trying to position yourself on a new acquisition or a new development, you know, against other competitors, um, you kind of mentioned a little bit about the price points and everything like that. But what are some of the other ways that you guys help to differentiate when you put in an offer? Uh, look, I'll be honest with you. A lot of this basically just boils down. It's an unfair game. Uh, so a lot of this just boils down to track record and how much money you've got. It's very unfair. I know a lot of people say, oh, do this, do that. 99% of that is just BS. At the end of the day, whoever has more money can provide that money at a quicker pace and has deeper relationships in the market is going to win. Doesn't matter how good your LOI looks. Doesn't matter how good you, because nobody look. To be honest with you, nobody really cares about your offering offering memorandum except you, and I guess maybe your investors, right? So nobody really cares about it. The brokers don't care. What they really want to deal with is people who have a track record, who they know about, or can, for instance, if you're say talking to somebody from CBRE. They can look in their database and see, have you talked to anyone else in CBRE in the entire country, right? Or if you're with JLL or ARA or whatever, Berkadia, as soon as your email comes in, they can immediately look it up in their system. So if you've closed deals, say, in Orlando or Jacksonville, and you're talking to the Berkadia guys in Atlanta, they'll be able to look it up pretty easily within their systems, right? So a lot of this is a track record issue. This is why the bigger you get, the easier it gets. But it's very hard, right? All along the way, it's very hard. But 
it's an unfair game and that's just the way things are. So for you, can you share a little bit with how you were able to build up your own track record? Just pick, you know? up, oh, just pick up the phone, start calling people, start doing property tours, closing on deals. I know I'm oversimplifying this and people want some like magic answer. What kind of words did you use with a broker or what, what there, there is, there are no secrets. Okay. I know a lot of gurus will have you believe that you have to go through their five step process or whatever, seven step process, do this. A lot of this, honestly, is just shots on goal, right? Like for instance, if you submit a hundred offers, right? There is a good possibility, even if you're say starting out, and if you're assuming you're somewhat self-aware, right? That in the process of submitting a hundred offers or a hundred property tours or whatever it is, you will pick up a few little things along the way, right? Like how to talk to people. That's very important, right? How to talk to people in a credible way. Now, there is no script for how to talk to people. You understand? I mean, it's a bit like saying, well, how do you not sound stupid? Do you understand? I mean, that's a pretty low bar, right? So that's all you got to do. So submit offers, do property tours. There is no secret around this. There is no, you, you can't go to a program or learn this. You literally, it's like riding a bicycle. You can read all the books you want on learning how to ride a bicycle, but till you don't get on the bicycle, it's not going to happen. It's literally that. That's just the way it is. And being self-aware obviously helps, right? If you're not self-aware, then nothing's going to help you. Got it. And so, you know, once you look at like the demographics and some of the other metrics in the surrounding areas that meet your criteria, you know, what do you look for in terms of the property itself um, when you're doing your underwriting? Look, in terms of the property, look, I'm just looking at, are there any major structural issues or not? How much rent issue, how much rent upside or not is left? Like what can we come to? A lot of times people just look at value add as repair the property, increase the rents, right? But a lot of times you're also having management issues. Maybe they don't have a good property manager. Maybe the regional isn't good. Maybe the property management firm isn't good. Maybe the owner has spent all, they have, the owner has all the money in the world, but no sophistication, right? So there are many things you have to look at, both physically on the property, but also as you go along, you underwrite, you see like, hey, they've been performing here historically. And again, a lot of this is just pattern recognition, right? Unless you don't underwrite 100 deals, 200 deals in a market or whatever that number is, maybe it's 50, right? It's just a large amount, big amount, right? You're just not going to see patterns because a lot of this happens to end up being pattern recognition. It's like, like you know, there's no book that says R&M in, for instance, Buckhead in Atlanta should be $400 per unit. There, there is no, because you understand one property can have 400, one can have 500, one can have 300, right? So a lot of this is just pattern recognition, being in a market, talking to people, getting that information, underwriting deals, doing property tours, and then basically liaising with your property managers. So a lot of this ends up basically becoming an issue of just, it's like practice, right? You keep practicing and then you develop muscle memory. There is no shortcut to this. Yeah, absolutely. The repetition piece of it is absolutely yeah. true. It's literally is because every submarket is slightly different. Demographics are slightly different. Conditions of the properties are slightly different. So you could have the same property being operated by two different people on two different cost structures, right? So you just kind of have to keep a lot of those things in mind. It's more of a framework issue as opposed to, hey, here's a number, go plug it in that cell in the Excel spreadsheet. Absolutely. So how about um, one of the things that you had mentioned earlier also was, you know, not only are you looking at maybe like the repairs and some of the other things that you need to be doing like the repetition on, but in terms of like, one of the things you mentioned was the property management issues. And that's something, you know, that's going to be different with every different property that you're going to be handling. 
Can you share a little bit of like, if you're having issues and difficulties with property managers, how do you recognize that? And how do you make that relationship the most, I guess, effective as possible to ensure that your property is running smoothly? Well, number one, a lot of times it's a squeaky wheel gets a grease sort of deal. So if you're not a pain, work doesn't get done. I'm sorry. It sounds really awful to say this, but if you're, if you are not a pain, you don't follow up. You don't like literally make sure everything is followed through on. It's not the property manager's money. It's your money. Okay. That's just the way things are in life. That if you want your work done, you have to make sure it gets done. Right. So a lot of times it's following up because the same way as you're assessing a property manager, you also have to realize property management is a very thankless task. Right. Because nobody says thank you when things are going great, but everybody complains when things are going bad. So it's a very thankless job. So as long as a property manager and the regional and the on site property manager also knows, hey, these are diligent owners, they follow up, they check everything, there's nowhere to run and there's nowhere to hide, right? They, more often than not, will do your work and maybe that comes at the expense of somebody else. But I'm going to be honest with you, that's just the way things are in life. So you got to worry about yourself in this context and your investors to be being diligent because a lot of times it's easy to blame the property management and be frustrated at them. But a lot of people, what they don't realize is maybe their projections were so rosy to begin with that, I mean, the property management firm is a bunch of magicians. They're not magicians, right? They can't just wave a magic wand and everybody starts paying $10,000 more a year. Right? So they have some structural issues. Right? You can raise rent as an example, $100 today. But if all your leases are going to expire, say, whatever, whatever is 12 divided, whatever is 100 divided by 12, I think it's 8 point something, right? Whatever, right? It's still going to, every month, it's still going to take you about a year to, to kind of catch up, right? I mean, it's not like you press a button and tomorrow things get done. So understanding your expectations and realizing nine times out of 10, it's not the property management. It's probably a sponsor issue, number one. But oftentimes, it can be a property management issue there. So in that case, trust me, I've learned this the hard way. And people before me have also learned this the hard way. And people after me are going to learn this the hard way. That you hire slow, but you fire fast. But I have, and I've realized I'm not the only one, but I can only talk in my context when I talk to some peers. It's very hard for me to fire people. Not because I don't want to fire it. You just seem like, oh, God, do I really have to do this? It sounds awful, whatever, right? But a lot of people have this issue. So you need to make sure that once you realize it's not a you issue, once you've given them a performance plan and they don't follow up on it for whatever reason or they can't do it and you need something done and you have a logical reason for it being done. Then you just got to change and move on. Don't look back, change, move on. But there's lots of steps in between. Don't, don't just change because if, you're, if you've changed like the third property manager in two years, then maybe it's not a property management issue. Maybe it's a you issue. We love hosting this show. When we started this podcast, we were doing all the editing and post-production ourselves. Now, we are very excited to have this particular company as a partner of the show to do all the post-production for us because it gives us the freedom to focus on the two things we care about, serving you, our listener, at a higher level and growing our own multifamily business. If you are like Sayla and me, then you want to add value to others while scaling your business. A podcast is the best way to do both, and we invite you to contact Adam Adams. He can help you launch your podcast, market your show for more listeners, and take all the post-production off your plate so you can focus on your business instead of in it. Listeners of this show can get a free consultation with Adam. To schedule your free consultation, find the link in the show notes. 
great advice. And so can you share some advice also on how to, how are you finding like quality property managers? Oh, you have to kiss a lot of frogs. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> there is no advice. I look, the advice is you have to kiss a lot of frogs, but good questions you can ask are they can talk to them. You can talk to them about their process, their systems, how familiar they are with the market, how much experience they've had in the market. And people should be able to give you a clear answer. For instance, if you ask how many units do you have in the market that you probably manage, let's say between 600 and 2,000. Well, okay, which one is it? Is it 600 or is it 2,000? How long have you been in a market? Oh, we've been in the market for a long time. Well, how much is long? Is it one year? Is it 10 years? Is it 100 years? Like, how long is it? So people can't give you a clear answer on binary questions. Right now, if you ask them, hey, what would you do in the situation? Like, whatever, some situation you've decided. And they present to you three alternatives, which all sound reasonable. I mean, that, that's a reasonable answer, right? But if you ask them specific questions, how long has your brain experience been? How many units do you manage? How, what software do you use? What services ancillary do you provide? Do you do all the bookkeeping in-house or is it outsourced? Do you do all the repairs and maintenance and construction in-house or is it outsourced? Small little things like that. But you have to have these conversations multiple times. Don't make the mistake. Everybody makes it, including myself, that you have one conversation, you've heard it from people, that these are great people, you go down this path and it might not be a good fit. That's great. Um, so one of the things you also mentioned just now was about the maintenance whether or not it's going to be in-house or if it's outsourced. So then if the property manager has something that's in-house and then do you get quotes from outside of the property managers as well? Or do you go by word with the property manager? Look, it's a combination of both things because at the end of the day, it is a trust-based system, right? Because if you literally are going to check every $5 expense, this relationship is never going to work out, right? So yes, you should for bigger projects or even medium-sized projects, you should get multiple bids and quotes, but also realize when they have something in-house, a lot of times they might be the general contractors in-house. They'll still sub out the bigger projects, but then they can manage it in-house, which is fine. There's no, there's no harm in that. But for bigger projects, it's always good to get multiple bids. Got it. So Omar, for you, as you've been building up your business, you know what has been kind of the biggest challenge that you've faced? Well, the biggest challenge for us is not nothing to do with the, uh, some of it's to do with the business, but it was also just the stage in life where we're at. My wife works uh, very long hours. We've got two young kids. So juggling and managing that with, say, for instance, my work, that's the bigger challenge. But that's not necessarily a business challenge. That's more of a life challenge. It's just a stage in life where we're at. Got it. Yeah, it's 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 a lot to juggle with the two kids yeah. and then the wife and the business. Yeah. So uh, can you share with us some of the ways that you've been able to find helpful to, to manage your time better with everything that you have going on? Look, I'm still working on it. So I'm not, I'm not the best person to ask about this. But all of my friends, my wife used to make fun of me for this. My friends still make fun of me for this. I tell everyone, look, if you want to do something, send me a calendar invite. If it's not on the calendar, it doesn't exist. I'm not even joking with you. Yesterday, one of my friends was like, an old friend of mine, like, well, that sounds very corporate. We we just have to have this call. I was like, look, dude, this is not because that call was not a personal call, right? That was a business call. Like like we had to talk about some business we're doing together. So I was like, look, dude. It's got to be on the calendar. If it's not on the calendar, it does not exist. But then you have to be militant about managing your calendar because if you say it's on the calendar, if it's not on the calendar, it doesn't exist. And then people are like, oh, I'll randomly call you. And then you have an hour long conversation. Well, 
then you're training people to know that, hey, it's not on the calendar, it doesn't exist, right? But also, I mean, don't be crazy about it, right? I mean, have, have like business hours, but outside of that, you can do whatever the hell you feel like it, right? But during business hours, I mean, to a reasonable degree, if there are emergencies, you make exceptions, right? But during business hours, be like, look, man, say whatever your business, maybe it's nine to five, maybe it's nine to four, maybe it's 10 to four, whatever it is. And then during these times, happy to talk, send me a calendar invite, but what I can't do is get on a phone call and ramble for three hours. Got it. So Omar, for you, what is next for you and what are you looking to focus on? Uh, look, we're continuing to do the same things, uh, just doing hopefully them in a better fashion. We have a lot of experience now. So every month we try to become a little better at what we're doing, right? Typing around the edges, that's very important. What I'm also doing is hiring a few more people now, right? Because you know, more a lot of this is a resource issue, right? The more money you have, the more people you can hire. So hiring a few more people. With the idea being that, I mean, I can only be in one, physically, I can only be in one spot at one time. And the people are an extension of myself and their partners as well. So uh, hiring those people, but again, it's a process, right? Finding the right people, right fit, and then just paying them adequately, right? But making sure we have enough money to pay them and then pay ourselves. So those are, those are more, I would say, business-related challenges, but they're also opportunities with these challenges, right? Yeah, and being able to recognize the opportunities as well. Yeah, but also being able to afford paying for the loss. Because, <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's unfair yes. to expect somebody, it's unfair to expect to get world-class talent and then pay them for part-time wages, right? I mean, it's it's unfair to that person, right? Right, and well, and also you're not going to be attracting world-class talent, you know, because they're going to be finding other opportunities. Exactly, well. right? Or even if somebody comes to you, but they're looking for a job somewhere else, well, then you, you're never going to get off the hamster wheel. So Omar, how has real estate investing impacted your life? Uh, I would, I guess it's, not I guess, I know it's impacted it for the positive. I mean, for me, the biggest uh, thing always was time freedom, right? Like, look, I, I was very, I'm very grateful to God that I grew up in a relatively affluent household. So we didn't necessarily want for anything. I mean, you know, we could always have more things, right? Or, you know what I'm trying to say, right? But, you know, we didn't want for things. And now, especially as I have kids now, I realize well, I had such a supporting family. I had so many resources at our disposal. But I'm very grateful for the life that I've grown up in. But for me, what was always important was uh, time freedom or the ability to somewhat manage my calendar, right? And running my own business to a certain degree, not completely, to a certain degree has afforded me the ability to manage my time in a way that I can still do the job that I'm supposed to do, but I'm able to do it somewhat at a time that I choose to do it at. So flexibility in my life is very important, especially, you know, if you have a partner, like my wife, for instance, she's a physician, she has long hours at work, which she can't just tell somebody, okay, yeah, I know it's your emergency, but it's not my emergency. You know, kind of hard to say that, right? That's fine. And if you, if there was one thing that you know now about real estate that you wish you knew when you first started, uh, what would that be? Well, I think uh, what that would be is basically that a lot of it right now, especially at least I feel is more of a marketing game than uh, than a capabilities or abilities game. And learning and becoming better at it, it's not something that comes naturally to me. And maybe it never will, because everybody has their own strengths, right? But it's more of a marketing game than I thought it was. And so just understanding and better learning that some people might be marketing more and they might be going ahead, but you just, everybody's on their own path. And sometimes it's frustrating because we get into the comparison thing, right? This person's so far ahead of me, why am I not doing that? So it's just learning and accepting those things and then hopefully uh, not getting too frustrated along the way. 
Absolutely. And actually, I'd like to ask you really quick, Omar, what have been some of the marketing strategies that you've utilized that have been the most helpful to you that you've seen so far? Look, you know what? I'm, I'm going to be honest with you. I am the wrong person to ask. <laughs> because I have told many people who wanted to invest in our deals who I felt either were not a good fit or this wasn't a good time for them to invest. I was like, look, man, I really don't think you should be investing my deal right now. The deal is good. It's not that problem. But I don't think it's a good fit for you because you don't have a lot of money or it seems like you don't have money. So for me, I'm just the wrong person to ask about that. I mean, because for me, it's been a very slow build as opposed to a quick build. So I think people who are, uh, who've been quicker to scale might be in a better position to answer that question. Thank you. Thank you, Omar. And then if there's one thing that sets the successful people apart in the real estate investing business, um, what would that be? Well, I think it's like any other thing. It's not just real estate. It's any other thing in life. It's just a consistency day in and day out. It doesn't matter if you're in real estate or life or whatever, whatever you're So what are some of the ways that we can stay consistent? For me, what helps is managing things to a calendar, right? Again, like I keep bringing calendar because for me, it's everybody views things differently. So for me, it's managing uh, myself to a calendar, managing myself to a certain time. And again, don't go crazy on it. Right? Have a little flexibility here. We're all human. But managing to a calendar, managing to a time, and just being generally organized and being self-aware. Uh, it's a combination of those things, for me at least. Got it. So we, you also mentioned like the calendar has been a really big proponent for you in terms of tools. But ha- are there any other tools or techniques that you've used uh, that, have, that you've found to be also efficient? Look, generally, I mean, look, generally, the thing is, you just have to be stubborn, just realize, and maybe stubborn is the wrong word, I guess somebody would say determined, or grit, whatever you want to call it, being stubborn, realizing uh, that a lot of this is just shots on goal, right? You just got to keep going, 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 going. And sometimes you're successful. And there is no reason why you should have been successful at that time. And oftentimes, you're doing everything right, and nothing happens. So just, just go, 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 go. I guess that's kind of the only thing. But I'm also learning, right? So maybe you ask me in a year's time and I'll have a better answer. (laughs) Thank you so much for sharing all that, Omar. So if our listeners wanted to find out more about you, Omar, and what you're doing, where's the best place that they can go to find out more? You can go to our website, boardwalkwealth.com, B-O-A-R-D, walkwealth.com. I think it'll be in the show notes, right? And right uh, on on the right side of the page, you scroll a little down, there'll be a little box that say click here or whatever. So enter your name, your email, how you find out about us. Click it, you'll get an email, verify your email address, you'll be added to the mailing list. Awesome. Thank you so much again for all of your time today, Omar. Thank you so much. I really appreciate you inviting me. And thank you for listening to our podcast today, brought to you by Bonavest Capital. We would really appreciate it if you can go to iTunes right now and leave a rating and written review. Also, please don't forget to subscribe so you can always get the latest episodes. You can also connect with us on Facebook, How Did They Do It Real Estate? We'd love to hear your feedback and any topics that you're interested in for future episodes. Lastly, to learn more about us, you can go to bonifacecapital.com and fill out the contact us page so you can speak to us directly. Nothing on the show should be considered as specific personal advice. Please consult your legal, tax, and real estate professionals for individualized advice.